If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. There's one thing in this life that you simply can't get back. When we were younger, we thought we had plenty of it. When we're old, we find ourselves wondering where it all went. What I'm hoping to speak on this morning is the importance of how we spend our time. As we wrap up our series on ups and downs and we enter this new year, I'd like to look at this last year and for us to do an honest analysis of the highs and lows of the year. Take the text today as an insight that helps provide clarity where we are not so sure and assurance for this upcoming year. Our text today will be found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, where we read the following. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of, the Lord, of God. Before we jump into the text, I want to give a little background on the book of Ephesians. First of all, Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul, who was called by God to the church of Ephesus, which is located as a very large trade city in Asia Minor. It would be modern-day Turkey, if you will. The city had a huge pagan worship center, considered one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, if you will. Paul left solid disciple-makers there, Priscilla and Aquila, who helped establish the church and discipled Apollos, who was one of the early church leaders. In fact, in Acts 18, 24 through 26, we read the following. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. You see, just as with many believers, we get things right, but there are areas that we still need to grow, areas that we need to learn. We need further discipleship, which is one of the reasons why so many believers that think they've arrived don't understand how the process of discipleship really works. You never arrive at this side of eternity. This is one of the reasons why discipleship is to be stressed at all times in every church. Because we all have areas to grow. Don't instantly push aside a believer that's passionate, that could be more precise. Give them time and grace to grow. Because the truth is, all of us need that. Not a single one of us has arrived to what God has called us to be. It's in this context that Paul writes the book of Ephesians to the body there to inform them in the beginning of their election by God, God's choosing of them before the foundation of the world, their call to good works, 
the glorious gospel itself, the importance of unity in the body of Christ. And this is where we pick up here in chapter 5, the call to wise, holy living. The Apostle Paul has just told the Ephesians to be careful how they are living their lives, that they walk precisely or circumspectly, to look around, to pay attention. Believer, do you pay attention to what's going on around you? Do you pay attention to not just what's going on in other people's lives, but what's truly going on in your own hearts? It is not your position, intelligence, or talent that makes you wise in the way that you live. It's your willingness to change when confronted with the truth that you're uncomfortable to admit at first. You see, first of all, we may be aware of sin and culture, but many are not aware that people are struggling with sin right here even in our own congregation. You see, we may be willing to help others in their struggle against sin, but unaware of our own potential weaknesses. That's why it's important to be very careful in how we approach one another. We may pretend to have it all together, but it's been a while since we've truly lived as God would want us to. I mean, we, we as Christians know how to look the part if you've been in the church any amount of time. We know how to look the part. So there are two questions we're really going to aim to answer today. Number one, why should we live wisely? I think that's a good question to ask. And number two, what does it look like? It's not important just to admit there's a problem. We all know that's the first step, right? We all know that's the first step. We have a problem. Now what are we going to do about it? So number one, why should we live wisely? In verses 15 and 16, we read this. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You see, here's the biggest truth that you can take away about foolish people. Foolish people don't live carefully. They live carelessly. And unfortunately, many believers that ought to be living lives of wisdom are living lives of foolishness. They are living apart from what Scripture calls. We'll get more into what it looks like to live wisely in redeeming the time here. So why should we live wisely? What's the point? Why are we driving to this being important in our lives? Well, the short answer here in this text is because the days are evil. The days are evil. What does Paul mean by that? We live in a fallen world. And if you read earlier in Ephesians, Satan has unbelievers captive. We should not be surprised when it makes it difficult for our own lives as believers. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we read the following. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. In fact, if you were to back up just a few verses in verse 8, we read the following to fill in this context. Paul reiterates this and says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, 
finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Believer, it's important that we pay attention to what's going on around us because the things going on around us affect what goes on inside of us. Paul alludes to this later on in chapter 6 when he says to stand in the evil day where he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Believer, it's a war. It's not a skirmish with some plastic swords that you used to play with as a kid. This is real. I believe what the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12 is pointing out is that there are some things younger people are not as aware of in regard to evil as older people are, which is one of the reasons he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. I think this points out a very important point to those in the church, namely that we should be warning those that are younger of the dangers of evil that we ourselves have seen and are aware of. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. An older brother or sister came along and said, hey, you know, I know you're not seeing this clearly, but here's what happens if you keep going down this path. And we tend to like to deny that, right? Like, no, that's not going to happen to me. Happens to everybody else, I'm good. And then we see the result happen exactly as that person predicted. The reality is all of us that have lived any amount of time on this earth, If we have those that are younger than us, we can share certain things and insights based on the fact that we've lived through certain things and seen certain things. So what are some of these evils today, if we were to be honest? Well, one evil today is a disregard for authority. I don't know if you've noticed that at all. Kind of a big one in our culture. This is a key component, by the way, to the satanic rebellion. Satan started by rebelling against God's authority. The idea that we know better than someone else. In fact, Satan thought he was a better God than God himself. The idea behind our Constitution is a great one until you fall into the trap that Israel fell into, that we are wise in our own eyes. We do right in what we think is right. Ultimately, the following happens. The disregard for authority breeds this kind of response. The role of leadership in the home is dismantled. Because the roles are reversed. The leaders of the nations turn on the people they are called to serve, igniting rebellion against their own authority. The leaders of our nation are not respected because they do not serve the people as God would call them to. As scripture says, righteousness exalts a nation, right? But sin is a reproach to any people. Evil is called good, and good is called evil. Another big evil in our culture today is abortion. Since 1973, and and, and you can update the numbers even as we speak, over 60 million innocent babies have been chopped up and slaughtered in American abortion mills. American doctors have dissected them, burned them alive, sucked their brains out, and yet American people seem to care less about this issue, more so now than ever. In fact, we want to protect this Right. 
So many Christians no longer care to talk about it because it's not worth fighting for. It's not the evangelical topic of the day. What's even worse is Christians in no way prove their pro-life and their lack of desire to even have children. The American dream has become a nightmare with children no longer viewed as a blessing but a curse. If actions speak louder than words, then Christians should want children, not just be opposed to abortion. It's easy to say the words that I'm pro-life, but to live them out is a whole other matter. Postmodernism in America, a nation that's supposedly one nation under God, but the truth is the United States has done everything they can to push God out of their classrooms. Man is the determiner of truth, and that can change based on what I'm feeling today. Never mind the merging of genetics to create hybrid species, the amount of debt we're accumulating as a nation that'll be left for generations to follow. There are so many things that are certainly evil in this world, and they've always been this way. In fact, sexual immorality was openly celebrated in the days of Paul. It's still openly celebrated today in vivid color on screens for all to see. So we know it's important to live wisely because it's dark. It's a dark world out there. But we really need to answer the question, how? What does it look like? Number two, what does it look like? In verses 16 through 21, we see what it looks like. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So Paul tells us here to redeem the time. What do we mean by redeem? What does Paul mean by redeem? Well, the Greek word used here, exagorazo, which in turn comes from two Greek words, ek, which is out of, and agorazo meaning to purchase. It appears four times in the Bible, in Ephesians 5.16, Colossians 4.5, and Galatians 3.13 and 4.5. In fact, in Galatians 3.13, the word is used, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He bought us back, if you will. In Galatians 4, 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Exagorazo is a marketplace term. When you redeem someone from slavery, as Christ redeemed us, you are purchasing them. You're purchasing them out of their slavery. You are paying the price to take them out of a bad situation. Christ paid for us to be free. And yet believers go back to slavery. It is literally as if Christ frees us out of the prison and we go back in. And as unfortunately happens so many times, we ask to be free again even though we've already been freed. 
Sin has no longer dominion over us. If we believe those texts, believers, then we need to live by those texts. So what is it that's being redeemed in Ephesians 5.16 and Colossians 4.5? The Greek word is karios, which means time, or kairos, I should say. But not just any idea of time. Kairos isn't about minutes and seconds and wristwatches and sundials. It's not about the flow of time or a specific measurement of time. It, ideas, it carries the idea, the right time. The idea of predetermined time or an opportune time. How much time would not be, how much time before lunch would not be the right usage of this word? Is it time to have lunch would be. One is speaking of time in minutes and seconds where the other is speaking of a point in time. The idea here is that planning is involved and points us back to the wise person that plans versus the foolish one that just wings it. Because the truth is, all of us have opportunities in this life. And the question is not whether we have opportunities. The question is, are we using them correctly? We've all heard it since we were children. You have tremendous potential. And how many of us have squandered that? How many believers and disciples of Jesus have squandered the opportunities he's given them? The writer of Hebrews reiterates that. Some of you should be teachers and you're still needing to be taught. You've been in the faith so long, but you're still winging it. You're not walking in the word of God. Wayne Barber gives a practical point on this. He says, what do you mean redeem the time? Purchase it. To purchase it, I have to have collateral. Not only do you have to have collateral, you have to have the right kind of collateral if you're going to purchase anything. So what is the collateral to purchase time? It is my choices. Redeeming the time has eternity in mind, not just the next paycheck, the new car, the new house, etc. Believer, you and I, we have opportunities that always come up. And the question is, what are we doing with those opportunities? Here in this text, we get the idea of making the most of the opportunities given to us. Disciples of Jesus should live intentional lives, not just how we feel in the moment. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, right? You have this thought in your head, like, I'm going to do something nice for someone today. And you're thinking it's a God thing because you just happenstance thought about it. It may be, but it also may be something that would be wise for us to do to plan for that in advance if God gives us that opportunity. What do I mean by that? Have money set aside to do something for others rather than like, I think I got three bucks left here. You see the difference between being ready for that opportunity and just winging it in the moment? As one author put it, time misspent is not time lived, but time lost. You can still live in that moment, but lose that moment, if you will. Paul tells us we ought to know what it is that God would want from us. And believe it, there's only one way to confirm that. 
It's looking into the Word of God. A disciple of Jesus, apart from the Holy Scriptures, cannot know what he's calling him to do today. In fact, they'll only be living off emotional impulse. A lot of believers live off emotional impulses. Feel pretty good today, have my cup of coffee, must be the spirit moving. Not necessarily. That's caffeine, and it's jittery right now. And you're feeling the spirit, it's not the same thing. Don't mistake an emotional response for the spirit every time. Doesn't mean the spirit doesn't work through our emotions, he does. We have a mind, intellect, emotions, right? Will. But emotions should not substitute for the spirit necessarily. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians today are emotion-based, thinking that's the spirit. Paul is saying, don't be a fool. Know what God's word says and do that. Which is one of the reasons why a lot of Christians are like, well, I don't feel like God says it's wrong. Those are the Christians that know, don't know their Bible. Those are the ones that are like, don't tell me what to do. That's not what God says. And it's like, it's in the Bible. It is what he says. You're the fool. Paul starts off by going after something that many of us go after, something that brings us comfort in this text. It's amazing that wine is what's discussed. In verse 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Chuck Swindoll puts it best when he comments on this verse. It's a long quote, but it's an excellent one. He says, I don't know of a more important verse in the New Testament for the Christian than Ephesians 5.18. Honest, no exaggeration. This verse tells the believer how to live an authentic, empowered life. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It begins with a negative command. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, which means excess, existing hopelessly, out of control. You see, when you're drunk with wine, you lose control. You also lose self-respect and the respect of others. Don't get drunk. A positive command follows, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a command, not a suggestion. It's an urgent imperative, not a casual option. Be filled is a command, which means I play a part in it. For example, I cannot be filled with the Spirit while I have unconfessed sin within me. I cannot be filled with the Spirit while at the same time conducting my life in the energy of the flesh. I cannot be filled with the Spirit while I am resisting God's will and relying only on myself. I need to be sure that I have taken care of the sins that have emerged in my life, that I have not ignored the wrong that I have done before God and to others. I need to walk in a conscious dependence on the Lord on a daily basis. You see, a lot of believers are trying to live the Spirit-empowered life in self-deception, convincing themselves that they're walking with God while tolerating things in their life that know, they know God is opposed to. Which is why the reading of God's word is so important. I just want to reemphasize that. Which is why many sermons that tickle ears only preach grace as if there's no sin to be repented of. 
Look, if you're never offended with the word of God, then you're not really reading the word of God. Because the word of God confronts us. Any message that preaches grace with no sin to repent of is denying the gospel message. And the very need that Jesus came to save. Filled with the Spirit is then spelled out in the following verses. Paul gives a nice elaboration of what that looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's one way. Another one is giving thanks for all things. A very hard one to live out. And then the last one is submitting to one another in the fear of God. Paul zooms in from the church as a whole, brings it in closer to the family unit, husbands and wives, and then he deals with masters or employers and slaves and employees. He gives you all of that in that context. The first thing we see here is God-honoring songs should be a part of our lives. Believer, if you think your musical intake doesn't matter, you're wrong. What you listen to does matter. It's something that we communicate with one another, which is why men should be leaders in this in the home, even if they can't carry a tune as well as their wife can. Well, I can't sing. That's not the point. We communicate what we think of God in whether or not we sing out the songs in worship. Which is why for the edification of the body, it is not enough to hear the sermon, but be engaged in singing the songs. Too many people come in only for the preaching of God's word. They don't engage in the singing of God's praises. I'm going to be passionate about this for a moment, church, because this is an area we need to repent of. We need to be more driven to sing the songs of praise. Not just for our hearts to be stirred, but for the edification of the body. That's why when the sermon's over, don't check out. Sing with the saints. Men, if you don't sing the songs of faith, what are you teaching your children? It should move you to pass this down to those around you. The text clearly states this is important. And yet, you know what many Christians do? They deny that this is important. It's constantly ignored in the church today with many that check out when singing begins. And unfortunately, in many churches, it's only the women singing and not the men. This is where our Reformed brothers are right and we are wrong. Singing is God-honoring and Christ-exalting. It should be done. Which means if you desire to hear theologically rich songs, you must also sing those theologically rich songs along with everyone else. Well, I want to hear the great hymns of the faith. Great, then sing it out with us. Amazing grace should come from your lips if you really believe it's amazing. Why would anyone believe these songs matter to us if we give so little effort in singing them? If grace is that amazing, you barely even sing the song. What are you communicating to others? 
May we sing out the truths of the gospel with every fiber of our being, more so than the songs we hear on our radio stations. Oh, goodness, amazing how many of us sing outside the church. In our car, we're like free to go, right? We sing along to every tune we listen to. But in the church, barely a word from us. If God is what matters, he gets priority. Not our favorite artist or music genre. And believer, I'm preaching to me as a pastor. If you've ever seen Pastor Roman driving by himself in the car, you don't want to see it when he sings. It's pretty animated. Believer, Jesus is king and he deserves all the praise and glory. That's all I'm trying to get at here. It may be uncomfortable at first, but it's the way with any discipline, including family devotions for us as men when we first start, right? Isn't it kind of like tough when you've been out of the loop for a while? Like, oh, it's embarrassing. We're going to start this again. That may be what's going on with singing. You're like, I don't sing. I'm not a good singer. Just start. Look, I have heard some of you. You don't carry a tune well, but that's okay. God knows and he understands. As one brother put it in this church, I'm making a joyful noise. That's what it's about. Remember that God's called us to lead men in these areas. What's another thing to be filled with the Spirit? Giving thanks should be a given in our lives. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But unfortunately, our complaints are way too frequent. And our thanks are sometimes superficial, are they not? Thank you for this, Lord, but... Living a thankful life, by the way, believer, is intentional. It's not just a feeling. You're not always going to feel like giving thanks. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I have to give thanks in this circumstance, Lord? Yes. It's not just a feeling when we get something we wanted. But even in the darkest time that we've been through, we ought to give thanks. A wise use of your time when God gives you opportunities is to be thankful for the people you are called to minister to. Believer, I'm going to pause for a moment and give you kind of a little background as a pastor. The greatest lesson for me as a pastor in the last couple years especially has been to be thankful for people in my life that I've even been hurt by. And what do I mean by that? Because there are lessons that God's teaching me. There are things that people have done that have truly taught me what am I really doing in my walk with God? How am I responding? Am I truly thankful as a pastor when things are not going so well? And the truth is, giving thanks for all things is hard. Some of you know that more than I do. Some of you have gone through very difficult situations in your life. And for you to give thanks for that circumstance is very difficult. But know that there's a sovereign God that does care. He does love his children. He works all things for our good. Even the very things we think are the worst that could happen to us. 
a wise use of our time is to be thankful for the people that are around us. We mentioned this before. Thank God for people privately in prayer, not just in person. One of the unfortunate things that happens is many of us are not thankful for people because we don't pray for them. We don't pray for them. Boyce points out in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, Shakespeare wrote in King Lear, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. True. Ingratitude in children wounds and sometimes kills. But how much more unnatural and repugnant is ingratitude in those who have become sons and daughters of the living God? It is so unnatural that a person may wonder if such a one has become a Christian in the first place. Believer, we are people of imbalance. And here are some ways that we deal with time that God has given to us as disciples of Jesus. First of all, we have what we call the busy disciple. What do I mean by that? This is the disciple that constantly works at the church, attends every service, works late at their profession, makes sure that they help everyone and anyone they can. They can't help but stay busy. This individual can be counted on to get things done in the church, at work, etc. But sadly, the response many times is bitterness or resentment towards those that don't work at the same level they do because they forget the reason they work so hard. Their motivation is for the Lord in the beginning, but over time, pride builds, and time that was for the Lord is wasted because they spent all their times busy about the Lord's work without spending time with the Lord himself. That's what we call the busy disciple. And you're like, oh, that's not me. No, don't worry about it. There's also the relaxed disciple. This is the individual that seems to be taking it pretty easy with their additional time. They don't work as much on their spiritual walk, nor do they find it important to be a help to others, or even the church for that matter. After all, the busy disciples will still get it done. They seem to have lots of free time because after all, they deserve it. Helping out here or there, and just because they work their 40 hours at the regular job, nobody else should have any of their time. They need to relax. It's always someone else that needs to drag them to help. They don't willingly do it themselves. They constantly think they deserve to be more relaxed after all they work so hard, just like others. They make excuses for why they can't do more for God and others. And they always seem to have the perfect reason not to help out. They hide behind a relaxed Christian experience but internally know they aren't doing what God's called them to. Their tendency is to think anyone that works hard in the church doesn't really need their help. They stand back and watch those that work hard at anything in life and only criticize and diminish their accomplishments while their hands aren't dirty themselves. The relaxed believer is ultimately distracted by other things that matter much more than God himself or his people. And the third disciple is the one that we really ought to strive to be as much as we can. It's what I term the balanced disciple. This is the individual that knows that God has called them, what God has called them to do, and they do that to the best of their ability. They don't care what others do or don't do in the church. They serve regardless of peer pressure or a push from someone else. 
No one needs to tell them what the needs are. They search on their own and ask. They're actually willingly looking to be a help. They know that they are finite in their abilities, so they don't do more than they can handle without asking for some help. And they ultimately show others how to do the task. They constantly have to repent of wickedness in their heart because they know how they tend to respond naturally when the task is not easy or the individual that they're working with is unbearable. This person tends to be low-key because the goal is never to shine light on what they do, but rather what has been done for them already. The balanced believer is a sinner that doesn't have everything figured out, but knows through proverbial wisdom what will happen if certain things are ignored in their life or ministry. They seem to make the most of every opportunity. Now, these are typical ways believers spend their time in the church. Not everything is true about everyone in every category exactly as it's laid out. But the idea is relatively consistent in how we as people can manage our time. And the question I have for us as we finish out this morning and this year is, how have I stewarded my time? How do I plan on stewarding my time this next year? Don't go into next year just going, We'll figure it out. In conclusion, the question to ask is, are you living wisely? Are you living wisely? You see, we need to plan our time wisely and redeem it as God would have us do. If you're busy, too busy, cut back. And I mean busy about the things of the Lord, not what really are time wasters. If you have hobbies that take 20 hours a week, that's not busy in the right sense of what I'm talking about here. If you're too relaxed, get your hands dirty. See where you can help out. Make the most of the opportunities presented. One of the hardest things in the church that those that serve know what I'm talking about when I say this. Someone comes up to you, I'm so glad you're doing this. This is such a help to our church. And that person literally internally is wanting to tell you, I could use some help. And you're thanking them and they don't know how to respond to you because it feels awkward. But they essentially be like, hey, can you help me? Can you join me instead of just thanking me? Can you be that steward alongside of me of what God's given us here? I want to personally thank those of you that have noticed certain things that need to be done around here, behind the scenes. There are certain things that, without me saying a word as a pastor, have absolutely impressed my heart that people have done when needs have needed to be met. Whether it's food that's needed to be made, cleanup that needs to be done, a person, a brother or sister needs an encouraging word. These are things that fill a pastor's heart with joy when people do these things willingly without you telling them, hey, go up to that person. Hey, go take care of this. We got all these problems. Please help us. It's way better when someone says, hey, listen, I'm available. What do you need? What can I help with? How can I serve? Strive to find the balance where you're serving God and others but making sure you take care of the needs at home which is what Paul gets at at the end of the chapter in chapter 6 of Ephesians, and into chapter 6 of Ephesians, in chapter 5 he finishes up. 
So a few things to remember as we finish up this morning. Eternity does depend on how you and I spend our time here on this earth. It matters what you do. It's not a waste. It matters what you do. James 4.14 reminds us that time is short. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Stop acting like you have many years ahead of you. You don't know that. Time can't be recovered. I know it's a reality. You live five years in marriage and it was rough. You can't get that back. But you know what you can do? You can redeem the time. You can have that abundant life that Christ has to offer by buying it back with wisdom. By making a good use of the time that God's given you. Thomas Brooks has great closing words for us regarding this. Make spending your time a matter of conscience, redeeming the time. Many people fool away their time, some in idle visits, others in recreations and pleasures, which secretly bewitch the heart and take it away from better things. What are our golden hours for but to attend to our souls? Time misspent is not time lived, but time lost. Music